Hey guys, it's Sammy and Robbie back again to tell you about another upcoming con. And we're super excited about this one. Mm-hmm. It's another Indiana one. This one is Pop Con, Indie Pop Con to be exact. And it's going to be in Indianapolis, again at the Convention Center. Indiana Convention Center. Right in downtown Indianapolis. And Robbie will be there April 26th through the 28th. Yes. We were just at the Indiana Comic-Con, so if you missed us, Mm -hmm. you get a chance to meet us again Mm -hmm. at PopCon. Yes. Well, at least Robbie. At least me. Ashley will be there. Oh, yeah. Ashley will be there. That's an exciting thing. Ashley will be there, so you get to meet a lot of us on the network. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two-thirds. Two-thirds of it, yes. Mm -hmm. So, if you're coming to the show, please stop by the Limitless Broadcasting booth. Mm -hmm. We're always excited to see you. All right. Oh, my God. Well, I guess we'll see you guys at the show. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, it's Ashley and Sammy from the Pixie Dust Twins podcast. If you love Disney, you should come join the fun on our weekly show. Our podcast is family-friendly and talking about all things Disney. Whether you go to the parks or just love binging Disney+, Plus, we are the podcast for you. So grab your Pixie Dust, think happy thoughts, and join us on your favorite podcasting platform. Check out LimitlessBroadcasting.com and aim for the second star on the right and straight on till you land on the Pixie Dust Twins podcast. Your whole life can change in an instant. About 50 million adults in the United States have chronic pain. And because of a car accident, Robbie is one of them. In their marriage vows, Robbie and Sammy promise to stand by one another and provide strength when needed. And lately, they've been facing some of their biggest challenges. Join them as they share the ups and downs of living with chronic pain. Welcome to another episode of the Painful Truth of Living with Chronic Pain podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Sammy. And I'm Robert. And today we are super excited. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. We are going to introduce a five-part series that goes along with our podcast. And what is that series? So we're going to be looking into the origins of the opioid epidemic or crisis. And we're going to be calling it Inspired by Dope Sick, a look into the family that addicted America. As you all know, when our patent for MS cotton expires, it will deliver a significant blow to the company because it comprises 25% of our sales. However, I have a solution. I propose we take the extended time release of the cotton system and create a new opioid specifically designed to treat moderate pain for long-term use. Dr. Peterson, please tell the grand jury, when did you first hear about Oxycontin? It was around the summer of 1996. A sales rep from Purdue Pharma told me that they had a new drug that was very effective in combating pain. Pain was becoming a big buzzword at the time. There was a nationwide movement to rethink the treatment of pain. Did Purdue Pharma spearhead this campaign? I believe they did. The sales rep said the drug was different because it was basically non-addictive. 
Had you ever heard of a non-addictive opioid? No, sir, I had not. And did he tell you what percentage of patients became addicted? That was the key to the whole sales pitch. He said less than 1% became addicted. Less than 1% would become addicted to OxyContin. He said less than 1%. He called it a miracle drug. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so there's a lot to cover, which is why we're going to break it up into five episodes or five parts, because it's just too much to talk about in one sitting. Absolutely. Literally. And I don't know if you guys have seen the show Dope Sick on Hulu, Mm -hmm. but if you haven't, definitely go check that out. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best shows put together on this topic. Yeah. And we'll get into that here in a second too. A little bit about inspiration, things that we've watched on the opioid epidemic and the Sackler family in particular, and what we would recommend basically to watch or check out. Yep. But first, before we get too far into the show, don't forget to go to LimitlessBroadcasting.com, as always, and check out all of our other podcasts. Just so you know, right around the same time, my best friend Ashley and I are still doing our Disney podcast, and we're actually doing a Summer of Star Wars. So Summer of Star Wars. Yes, if it that interests you. Doesn't get any better than that. Check it out. If you're watching this, you've got some Star Wars stuff set up back here that I put up in addition to the Iron, Iron Man, Man mask that's here. You guys did Marvel, right? I was just going to say, if Marvel's more your thing, every March we're going to start doing a Marvel series, and that started this year. We called it Marvel March. So we talked about a lot of our favorite characters and movies coming up. So make sure you check that out too if that interests you. Or Absolutely. If you like the parks, we talk a lot about the parks too, like Disney World in particular. So you guys have offer something for pretty much everybody. Any Disney fan, basically. Okay. Hopefully. So make sure you do that. And of course, follow us on social media. If you've got any sort of Instagram, we have Instagram for ourselves at the Sam and Lamb and at Robert1950 Studios. Yep. And we also have a Limitless Broadcasting account and one for the Painful Truth, which you can find um, as well on Instagram. And we have a TikTok, 1950 Studios. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. We post all sorts of entertaining videos on there. I was just on set yesterday Mm -hmm. and I posted some behind the scenes look of what Mm -hmm. it was like to be on a movie set. Mm -hmm. So if you're ever interested in that, you can you can watch it on our TikTok. Yes. So there's a variety of things on there. So sometimes we're doing goofy things or sometimes it's behind the scenes. So make sure you check that out. Yep. Also, just to introduce a little bit more of this series today in this episode in particular, we're going to kind of talk about why we wanted to do this special and what inspired it as we were just kind of alluding to and what the other episodes will kind of look at and focus on as well during the series. And as always, big disclaimer, we are not providing any sort of medical advice to nope, you. We're not. Please always talk to your doctor and do what's best for you. Yep. Please. Yes. Sammy's put a lot of work into this show, so it's going to be very entertaining. I hope so. I hope it's enlightening in some ways. I think it will be. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the show, Robbie was talking about the series Dope Sick, which is what really kicked off our interest in doing this. Yes. That's definitely one of the shows and documentaries that we watched, probably the first one. It was our first one, yes. Yeah, about this whole thing that really kicked off our interest. So as you said, Dope Sick can be found on Hulu. Yes. Still streaming on Hulu. Still streaming. Mm -hmm. It's won a couple of awards. 
yeah as well i'm not sure um i can't remember which ones but, but I, definitely they have won several awards mm -hmm. for the series mm -hmm. so it's very lifelike mm -hmm. there's eight episodes as part of this little mini series and according to the official description the series takes viewers to the epicenter of America's struggle with opioid addiction from the boardrooms of Purdue Pharma to a distressed Virginia mining community to the hallways of the DEA. It's your official little descriptor. Hulu's limited series is based actually on a book or part of it's based on a book. It's a nonfiction book that was written by a journalist named Beth Macy. I tried to read the book mm -hmm. and it was it wasn't as good as the book as the show. It's because it's different. very scientific. It hits you with a lot of mm -hmm. numbers, statistics. It, mm -hmm. I had a hard time getting into it. Mm -hmm. But from the show standpoint, mm -hmm. I just I was Im immediately hooked. So there's some differences. The the book is called Dope Sick: Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. And she originally was just writing about the opioid crisis in Appalachia, but originally what interested her was all of the heroin use that was going on there. So it kind of okay. started with that and she traced it back to Oxycontin and the Sacklers. So that's how that ties in. But she does a lot of talking to families and those affected in particular in that region and talking about going into the heroin users and the drug dealers and she gets a lot into that okay so i was more interested in the book part just on the the opioid in particular the sacklers and whatnot but the series kind of ties it all in so yeah they jump back and forth they go through time you see mm -hmm. everybody's standpoint viewpoints mm -hmm. how they got to where they ended up in the series mm -hmm. the whole yeah. nine they well we'll tell you about the the characters so because this was the one that interested us the most, give you a little bit more background. The series stars Michael Keaton as Dr. Samuel Phoenix. So this is not a real doctor. He was- He was made up. Yeah, but he's a combination of characters or real life people. And he is a doctor who starts prescribing it reluctantly after meeting with a Purdue Pharma sales rep. And he eventually becomes addicted himself. So it's an interesting journey to see him struggling with addiction as a physician and dealing with patients who are dying from it and then testifying ultimately yeah but he's he's not real he was a a combination of characters he was made up but i'm assuming most people know who michael keaton is but i know sometimes when we talk about shows it's like hard to picture who you're talking the about the batman exactly so think of batman the batman the batman returns yep beetlejuice is one of my favorite Beetle, halloween movies yes. so i always think of him in that and then most recently he was Vulture in the Spider-Man Homecoming. And I believe he's going to yeah. also be in some upcoming Yep, he will be. As Vulture. Yep. We also have Peter Sarsgaard as the assistant U.S. attorney Rick Mountcastle. I have loved Peter for a long time as an actor because he starred in one of my favorite movies by Zach Braff, Garden State. But I'm a big Scrubs nerd and Zach Braff fan. So that's kind of where I first was introduced to him. But he was also in Jarhead and Black Mass. I don't know if you remember him being in Black Mass. I know okay. you've been into the mob movies. That's one of your. I am. I'm trying to picture him, and I don't. He was Brian Halloran, but I'm not sure if that rings any bells. I'm. I'm trying to think, and I. I would have to go back and rewatch it. Most recently, Peter has been in The Batman, 
that just came out. He was District Attorney Gil Colson. He's the black guy. No. No. He was the one that was in the SUV. Okay. The guy that met yes. the Riddler in the SUV. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this movie, he's a good guy as a U.S. attorney. The district attorney character in the Batman, I'm not so sure <laughs> that he was. Okay. He's a bit corrupt, I would say. No, I As gotcha. you expect from the Batman movies. So. Exactly. If you haven't seen the latest one with Rob Pattinson. Well, very good movie. Do you recommend that too? It's on a streaming on HBO Max. There you go. You can watch it on Check HBO it out Max. now. Mm-hmm. Check it out for sure. We liked it. Yeah. We also have Michael Stahlberg as Richard Sackler, who's very key in this entire thing, and we will get more into that later. If you don't remember who he is, I feel like you'd recognize his face. He was Andy Hertzfeld in the Steve Jobs movie from 2015. He was also Arnold Rothstein in Boardwalk Empire, which I have not seen, but I know a lot of people Boardwalk Empire was a great series mm-hmm. from HBO. A lot of people have seen that, so that's his main his character in there. And he was also Jimmy Baxter more recently in the series Your Honor with Brian Cranston. He was on that too. Another one you could check out if you have not, because I know we watched that. I believe there's okay. still only one season out of on that one, but if you love Brian Cranston, I would recommend checking it out for sure. Right. I think they're actually gonna come out with a season two so. of that mm-hmm. because it's so good good. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have Will Poulter as Billy Cutler, who's a Purdue Pharma sales rep. He definitely has a distinctive face. So if you've seen The Maze Runner or the sequel, he was a big key part in those movies. He will also be starring in the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 as Adam Warlock. Really? Yeah, which I did not know until I was doing research for this. (laughs) So he'll be up and coming soon in the next Guardians of the Galaxy. It's got to be a big get for him since that's very popular. Caitlin, is it Deaver? I think it's Deaver or Dever. Sorry, Caitlin. She stars as Betsy. Betsy is actually a patient of Michael Keaton's character. She was on Last Man Standing. Yes. That's her claim to fame. She's Eve Baxter, and that's where we first met her. Yeah, I definitely like her better in that. Yeah, it's a quite different character in this. That character. She was also on Justified, has a character named Loretta McCreed. And she was in another effects. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And she was in another Netflix drama miniseries called Unbelievable, where she played Marie Adler. That was also a little bit more of intense movie. She, that's the one where she was raped. Yes, Spoiler definitely different alert. from Eve. Yeah. <laughs> in Last Man Standing, if you've been a fan of her on that. Yeah. But she's a great actress. I think she's got a lot coming for her. Yes. Next up is Rosario Dawson who is Bridget Meyer, who's the DEA agent who actually goes after Purdue Pharma. So she's got a big part in this as well. She was, if you don't remember, a big part of hers was Mimi Marquez and Rent, which came out in 2005. So it's a little bit longer, a little bit older movie. She also played Claire Temple in the Daredevil series, which I've not seen. She was Gail in Sin City, which was a big deal for her. And she also is Ahsoka to tie in Star Wars. She voiced Ahsoka later in the Clone Wars, I believe, but I've not finished that series, so can't say that I'm accurate on that. But she plays the live action version of Ahsoka. She was in The Mandalorian season two and will be getting her own series pretty soon on Disney Plus. I have no idea who you're talking about. Rosario Dawson. Oh, okay. Okay. The D agent. 
No, I got you. Ahsoka, she's had the orange face and she was working with Grogu oh, and okay. the Mandalorian. I made okay. sure Grogu got to. No, I got you. Yeah. I got you. I and on, yeah. More about that on the Disney podcast if the Mandalorian and whatnot it's interests more of you. Your style. Mm-hmm. And finally, we have John Huganacker, who was the other assistant U.S. attorney, Randy Ramsmeyer. Apparently, he hasn't done as much when I was trying to see what else he was in, but his big claim to fame was he was a black ops CIA operator, Mattis, in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan on Amazon. Really? Okay. So that's that's a big good. get, too. That's still pretty good. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of put in a picture of the, the big stars that they have on this, who they have as the characters, I think they did a great job casting them. Michael Keaton. If you if you get Michael Keaton in a show, you're guaranteed to have a good show. I think that's originally why we decided to watch yeah. it, because we're big Michael Keaton fans. Right. And obviously, I said I love Peter Sarsgaard as well, so I was excited to see him in this. And then when you're watching the series... If you watch Michael as Richard Sackler, you might be like, what is this guy's problem? Because he speaks so funny and so low. But if you ever look up out of curiosity, actual depositions and interviews with the real Richard Sackler and how he was in real life. So the weirdness that comes out of his acting, that was a choice because that's more accurate Mm -hmm. (laughs) to what the actual guy was like just keep that in mind when you're watching it because you're kind of like what is up with this very much so yeah he's not just doing that for no reason when he's acting but that kind of gives you a little rundown on dope sick and like we said it jumps around in time it'll always tell you where you're at but it shows the beginnings of the epidemic like the doctor being reluctant to prescribe oxycontin when he's hit up by the purdue pharma rep and they start talking about it and he ultimately prescribes it gets prescribed it himself and his downfall from that and also the whole time what the cases are what cases are being built by the DA and the district attorney's office against Purdue Pharma and basically how they're coming at it from two different angles for the same kind of goal. Right, exactly. Very interesting. I really enjoyed watching the series and it made me very mad. Could All you of this rewatch the series? I could. Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't I know if you it. thought it was that good to rewatch it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And I know they're going to do a season two and it's going to be again focused on, um, I believe, AstraZeneca. They're doing a season two. Yes, I just read about that. I believe it's no Abbott. I said AstraZeneca. It's Abbott. Lawsuits coming against them. So it's not going to be the same sort of, you know, Oxycontin focused, but it sounds like they're going to continue this series of looking at big pharma and the shady okay. things that they do. Okay. Which is a lot. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So just heads up. I don't know when that's coming out. The next thing that we watched was called The Crime of the Century, and this is on HBO Max. Yes. This is a two-part documentary that was directed by Emmy and Academy Award winner Alex Gibney. It looks at the origins, extent, and fallout of one of the most devastating public health tragedies of our time, with half a million deaths from overdoses this century alone. The film reveals that America's opioid epidemic is not a public health crisis that came out of nowhere. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. The first episode or first part of the documentary really focuses on this topic in particular with the Sacklers. Mm -hmm. The second one goes into another drunk company that produced a fentanyl that was like a lollipop and i'm sure that didn't taste good i'm sure it didn't but that had a little more justice 
in a sense because the CEO founder of that company actually did get arrested. And I believe we said he's, we looked it up and he's still currently serving in, I think he's in his prison, prison right time now. right now, but it's not very not, many, much, no. much time. It's, it's like two years. It's not for the deaths and everything that it's not fair, it's but not enough time, but it's a little different than what comes with this case. So right. we'll look a little more into that later. But that's another one I would definitely recommend, especially like documentaries, which we are kind of documentary nerds sometimes. <laughs> I like to watch stuff. Yes. A lot of documentaries. That, again, is on HBO Max if you're looking for that. So to shift gears a little bit, there's a uh, four-part episode miniseries on Netflix called The Pharmacist, which got a lot of attention, I think, last year. I yeah, it was last year. Last year. Everything kind of blends together with COVID. This yeah, one, right. obviously I'm interested in it because it was – a pharmacist who is the main star of this documentary yeah after his son's tragic death a louisiana pharmacist goes to extremes to expose the rampant corruption behind the opioid addiction crisis now if you haven't seen this and you start it it does not feel like it ties into this at all because he's talking about his son's death that he did not know his son was addicted to drugs and his son ends up getting shot and killed while he's out buying drugs from a drug dealer And that's where we start. We watched this. Do you remember? It's been a minute, Mm -hmm. but it's coming back. That's what the first episode is kind of focused on. If you start it, you're going to be like, what are you guys talking about? But it all starts to come together right at the end of the episode. Ultimately, what this pharmacist does is he realizes that Oxycontin is being rampantly prescribed and sold on the streets. And he wants to get to the bottom of it. And he finds a pill mill, which if you don't know what a pill mill is, that's basically a doctor or collection of doctors who are illegally writing these prescriptions. You just come in and pay cash. They don't really see you for anything. And they just give you whatever you want. Usually a combination of Oxycontin, a muscle relaxant, maybe ibuprofen, just some other bullshit. Why that combination for people? If you take Oxycontin and muscle relaxant, which is usually benzodiazepine. So we're talking Alprazolam or Xanax, Diazepam, Valium. You okay. take that in combination, you're going to get a pretty good high Okay. from taking that. The ibuprofen, no. That's just, we always like to say they threw the ibuprofen and maybe some other things. Sometimes I would see like lisinopril for blood pressure, some bullshit like that, that they would just throw in there to try and throw you off. Mm-hmm. Like we're stupid. We knew what they were doing. That's what a pill mill is. You come in, you pay cash, you're not really seen for anything. And this lady was prescribing so much Oxycontin to these people who were selling it, abusing it. It was insane. And that's what this really gets into. This area of Louisiana in particular talking about the poor areas who are really hit hardest by this. Right. Absolutely. Because they can't afford things. So maybe they go get their Oxycontin prescription. They can pay for it with their insurance. Mm-hmm. And then they can sell the pills for a lot of money to be able to pay for things like food and their rent and right. what else they need. Maybe other medical treatments. Right. So it really kind of brings that out to show what's going on. And it also kind of shows how criminalized these people are. And I feel bad for a lot of the addicts because they need help and they're being put in jail and arrested and not really getting the help that they need. And it kind of touches on that a little bit better than Dope Sick did, in my opinion. So what, you don't think jail's the the answer? Not if you're addicted and especially if you're not addicted from your own choice, which a lot of these people didn't know what they were getting into when they were prescribed these drugs. 
So I think there should be more focus on rehabilitation and actually helping them versus just arresting them. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Last, as far as things to watch out for, Painkiller is a series coming to Netflix. It says 2022, don't know when. Sometime this year, though. This I'm very interested in because they call it, as the only description I can find on Netflix's website is they say, it's a drama series about the origins of the opioid crisis. When I looked into it, it's the same story as Dope Sick. It's going to be talking about the Sacklers and the rise of the opioid crisis. Same idea. They got the same sort of characters. You know. But I don't believe it's based on that book. I don't know what they're looking at when they created this series. I bet if you're the Sackler family with the last name Sackler, Mm -hmm. people are not too happy about them. No. Like walking around. I mean, they probably have security with them. A lot of them, I believe, don't live in America anymore. They left. Really? Yeah, they went overseas. I wonder why. And their names have been removed from museums and places where they donated money, which the donations were good, but now they're not getting their names on the wings of these museums or buildings or schools. Do you think they're still donating money? I don't really know. And I have to do a little more research into that before we get to the last part of the series where I'll kind of touch base a little bit more on some of the legal stuff that's going on. I'm very interested in this series though. It's coming to Netflix. I didn't list all the stars on here, but one of the key ones is Matthew Broderick is going to be Richard Sackler. I'm very interested to see how he plays him. Yeah, that should be super interesting. I like Matthew Broderick. I do too. We'll see when that comes out how it is i've got it saved so netflix will let me know when it's released so those are kind of the the shows and movies documentaries that i would check out there's a lot more out there but those are the ones that we've seen right to get a little bit more into the topic itself and maybe why it's not only relevant to the everybody in america you, me, obviously, we'll yeah. get into that. The poor people, like I just said, that are affected. But addiction like this and the opioid crisis didn't just affect your everyday person. It also affects celebrities. And it gets attention in the news sometimes because of that, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending. Right. Most recently, I know it has been in the news because of Johnny Depp, who I am a big fan of. been a big fan since... High school, yeah. Ashley and I did a whole series actually on Johnny Depp this year for our podcast. And we've been big fans of him, yes, since Pirates of the Caribbean came out. That really got us set on him. So I've been really interested in what's going on with the trial and all of that, but we're not going to get into all that nonsense today. However, during the trial, Depp has brought up his addiction to roxycodone, which is oxycodone. It's just the brand name of it. He was. He gets the brand name pills. Well, I'm sure he does because he has a lot of money. So there's a good possibility. But he was addicted to the opioid. He had suffered a back injury from performing an action scene on the 2011 Pirates of the Caribbean movie on Stranger Tides. And to quote him, he said, I was bit by this snake. And before you know it, that monkey is on your back to stay. Yes. So he had developed his drug problem from being legally prescribed an opioid. Mm-hmm. He admitted that once he finally kicked the drug, he vowed to stay off of it, no matter how much pain or discomfort he suffered. Like when one of his fingers was sliced off while on location in Australia in 2015, he said he still didn't take the opioid again, saying, quote, once you've been bit, you will be bit again. So I find that very interesting that he 
he's gone through recovery and has basically refused to he get is. himself in any sort of position to take it again and potentially get addicted. His finger got sliced off. Yeah, but I hope that ibuprofen or whatever wow. they gave him helped with Tylenol. I don't know what he took for it. Another big actor who we know about and has had drug issues is Matthew Perry from Friends. Yes. That's been a big news source over the years. I believe I read somewhere that he got prescribed the Vicodin for an injury he suffered as well. Mm-hmm. I believe, yeah. That landed him in rehab two times for his Vicodin addiction. He also ended up addicted to alcohol, amphetamines, and methadone. Which is ironic because methadone is usually used to treat people who are addicted to opioids to help them come off of the medication. But a lot of people end up abusing the methadone. And this is a good case to show that. Does methadone taste good or how do you take? No, they're pills and liquid. In the show Dope Sick, they do show the doctor going to a methadone clinic and it's a liquid. And I'm sure it tastes like garbage. I can't imagine that tastes good. He eventually switches to Suboxone, which is another treatment for addiction. And they have films, and I'm not sure what those taste like, but I just can't imagine any of this stuff tastes that great. No. Honestly. One thing that's interesting, though, about Matthew Perry is that after his recovery, he went on to open a sober house and has lobbied Congress to allow more drug courts which I believe would be basically decriminalizing people who You opened a drug house? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, a sober house. I did not know that either until I was looking this up, and I thought that was really great for him to do. Yeah. Eminem, another big one that we know about. Yeah. He has a whole album called Recovery, which is an album detailing the depths of his addiction to prescription drugs. He had an addiction to opioids and benzodiazepines, which we just referenced a little bit ago. A lot of combination of that happens out in the real world. What began with him just misusing Vicodin to feel mellow spiraled into a dependence on a cocktail of prescriptions, including Xanax and Valium, and obviously the the opioids as well. But he credits his love for his daughter, Haley, for his dedication to his recovery and sobriety. So I think that's a key thing too, for when you're addicted is trying to find that reason to, to fight every day. To be sober. And next we have Macklemore. Macklemore actually was reading about him. He started drinking at a young age too. So he probably was a little bit more predisposed to some addictions, but none of this I really knew about him. In his twenties, he said he got addicted to Oxycontin. He nicknamed it synthetic heroin, which is accurate. And I can see why he called it that. When his addiction began to seriously jeopardize his relationships and his career as a musician, he turned to rehab. And since then, he has become a vocal advocate for recovery. He also worked with Ryan Lewis and President Barack Obama and released a documentary in 2016 called Prescription for Change, Ending America's Opioid Crisis, which I've not seen, but it was made with MTV. So I'm sure it's available through them to watch, but I've not seen it. That's on my list that we should check out sometime because I've... Didn't even know he did that. Yeah, neither did I. But I think that's very cool, and especially through MTV, because you can reach some of those younger viewers through MTV. Now, not everybody recovers and does well and is able to help the community. As we know, there's a lot of celebrities who also died of opioid or drug-related deaths. I kind of looked for specifically celebrities who died related to opioids in particular, but I'm sure some of the others who died of harder drugs may have been exposed to 
opioids at some point in time. Right. So Prince is a big one that happened somewhat recently. He died of a fentanyl overdose. Fentanyl is a very strong opioid. Very scary. Especially mm-hmm. if you if you're what we call opioid naive, so you haven't taken any of these medications, you didn't build up a tolerance and you're exposed to it, it could definitely kill you the first time you ingest it. Right. That's very, very scary. Corey, you might recognize. Corey Haim was known for his role in The Lost Boys and being one half of the two Corys with Corey Feldman. Yeah. It's very well known. In 2010, he was accused of doctor shopping, which is when you go to multiple doctors to obtain prescriptions for pain medications. He ended up getting thousands of pills, including Oxycontin, which is just insane to even think about thousands of them, which he probably did. It didn't say frequently, but I'm assuming probably every month or every couple months he was ending up with all of this. In 2010, Corners attributed his death to pneumonia and enlarged heart, but I'm sure these addictions contributed to that. It's just insane and very sad to think about. Heath Ledger is another big one that made me very sad. I'm a big fan of Heath Ledger ever since 10 Things I Hate About You. I still love him in that movie. Right. He uh, obviously is a very well-known actor, especially with like The Dark Knight. That was his last role. He said that his role as the Joker and his role in I'm Not There affected his sleep, and he felt forced to take pills to help. So at age 28 in 2008, he overdosed, and this was insane when I read this list. He was on a combination of oxycodone, hydrocodone, two opioids, diazepam, temazepam, alprazlam, which are all benzodiazepines, and doxalamine, which is an over-the-counter sleeping medicine. So it's so no wonder he died. That would kill an elephant, I would swear. So you think that's why I killed him? You're not going to be breathing taking all of this. All of this can slow your, what we call respiration rate or your breathing rate. All of it can slow it or stop it. Even just taking one of these could do that to you. Right. So the fact that he was on all of that, I'm not surprised that he overdosed, unfortunately. But those are kind of the big, you know, celebrity news to kind of tie it in that it's not just I've, you know, it can wow. affect anybody. The everyday folk. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, talking about this, I got interested in this subject because I'm a pharmacist. Hello. So I already endured for drug stories and, and whatnot, doing research on the whole crisis. I knew opioids are a serious business and you get concerned and the DEA and the government really started to get involved in the last couple of years of trying to make sure people were safe with opioids and being able to dispose of them and having Narcan on hand because Narcan is an antagonist. Basically, what it does is it can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. So that's why they try and recommend if you're on opioids for a long period of time that you have that on hand at home just in case you need it. Trying to discourage you getting oxycodone or hydrocodone after dental procedure or minor procedures, trying to stick with Tylenol, ibuprofen, drugs that are a little bit safer for you to take over a couple of days for pain relief. All of this I knew, but really digging into this, it just pissed me off to see all of this and how much bullshit went into the whole idea of pain treatment. And it's just angered me reading about it, especially now with you. Robbie, being on pain relievers and having chronic pain, some of the things that they recommended you do and trying to help you, we were kind of like, oh, it's not working. But at the same time, I'm feeling like they're always pushing that agenda. 
the whole idea of just sticking you on a pain medication to fix you, I've never really been super into. And now I'm definitely just mad because it's, it's a racket. This, this entire thing, it's just bullshit. They pushed an agenda. They created this false environment and safety around these drugs and it's just ruined people's lives. That's not to say opioids can't help certain people or may not be appropriate for you, but it's something really to look into what you're taking and how often you're taking it, it and who's giving it to you. Term, though. It's really best to not be on it long-term and chronically for I, your health. I'm dependent on it. I know that. Physically dependent, yes. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't get it illegally or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people are out there are the same way I am. Mm-hmm. They're dependent on it mm-hmm. to get by day to day. But I'm in some of the worst shape I've ever been in my life. Mm-hmm. I mean. And we talked about when you were taking more of the medication at one point in time, it wasn't helping number one, the pain like you would hope it was making me crazy it was literally making you so difficult to live with you were angry you were suicidal and crazy i hate to use that word but essentially you are not yourself and that was one of the lowest times in our lives really and truly i was just like he's gonna kill himself he's not listening to me i don't know what to do for you i just wanted to take all of your pills and flush them down the toilet why didn't you do that? Because at the end of the day, then that would have kicked you into a serious withdrawal. Right. And that would have been torturous for you. What I wanted you to do was listen to what I was saying to you about how to take it and have discussions about it. I, but, was, tr- I was trying to listen to you, but I was so angry. Yes. I was very angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wasn't just angry at you. I was angry at everybody. Mm-hmm. So, it was hard. Yeah. It was a hard time to get How out of. How long was I like that? Uh, probably a couple months. Oh, I so think. it wasn't like a year. No, it was probably a couple months, but therapy and then I guess you finally listening to me is what kind of fixed that. I think the thing that when you were like, if you don't care about yourself, don't don't include me. Yeah, because I couldn't continue to deal with you like that. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people who have someone who's addicted to anything, you know, it doesn't have to just be opioids, alcohol, any sort of drugs in their lives. It's just, it's hard because you know that person doesn't care enough about themselves to take care of them. And that's ultimately what you have to decide to do if you are addicted is do it for yourself first. Right. I think that's the most important thing to get you out of it, not for others. You have to want to do it for you right. and value yourself enough. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's important to talk about this and the origins and really get a good picture of where this came from and to kind of have a better understanding of why opioids became so popular for pain control. The Sacklers did that though. Yes. And when you read about it, and this is something they didn't really go over in pharmacy school. So me learning about this more and more, that's what really piqued my anger because I had patients taking this sort of medications and you don't realize how much harm they really are doing to themselves in the long run 
And now I work at a pharmacy where we dispense medication to help these people who are addicted to opioids, help them get treatment. And that seems the better side of the coin to be on. Right. So anything else you want to say about why we wanted to do it? No, I think that's pretty much we summed it up. All right. So we're going to dive in now. We're going to meet the Sacklers family behind it all. We're going to start way back with Isaac Sackler and Sophie Greenberg. They were Jewish immigrants who arrived in New York before the First World War. They had three sons, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. And these are our key players in this entire thing. Their first son, Arthur, died in 1987 at the age of 73 before Oxycontin was invented. And reading about it, his heirs actually have not benefited from the sales of Oxycontin. Really? He had four children and I saw, I believe one of his daughters had actually even come out and said she thinks it's basically despicable what the rest of the family was doing. So her cousins and whatnot. Really? Yeah. So they haven't, why not, didn't they benefit from it? There's a whole lot of other information about the deals that the, the three sons had come up with when they bought Purdue Pharma. And really Arthur contributed money into it but he wasn't really actively involved in it and then when he died some shady business going on with how they ended up dealing with the what he was owed and whatnot so you can read about that a little bit more if that interests you but i didn't want to dive too much into that here but there's they've always been a little shadiness so, so going apparently on they family. don't get along with their cousins i don't Get the idea that they do but i'm gonna assume they're pretty wealthy that side of the family uh, well they're still, still from still pretty wealthy yeah arthur had acquired a lot of artwork and rare art pieces and donated a lot of money and had his own wings at some museums and we'll talk a little bit more about where he got his money from which is still pretty shady honestly so the second son mortimer he died in 2010 at the age of 93 and he was a former chief executive of purdue pharma Mm -hmm. He had seven children, and three of them are board members of Purdue Pharma, include Eileen, Kathy, and his son Mortimer, which you will see some references to them in the Dope Sick series, in particular Kathy. She seems to be a little bit more involved in some of this that was going on. The third son, Raymond, died in 2017 at the age of 97, right? His family lives forever. Yeah, not Arthur, but the rest of them. Raymond was also a former chief executive of Purdue Pharma. He had two children who are both member, board members of Purdue Pharma and one grandchild who's also a board member. Now, his two children were Jonathan and Richard. Richard is the key, 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 key guy for this entire thing at the end of the day. He was the former president and co-chairman of Purdue Pharma, but he is the big one that really helped bring about oxycontin which we'll talk about so to give you a little more information on arthur even though he was not involved in oxycontin he still was very important in kind of the way they did things eventually at purdue so in the early 1940s arthur joined a medical advertising agency called william douglas mcadams inc and that was a big deal for him he was a big part of that he actually worked with Pfizer to help introduce one of the first forms of paid advertising. And that came in a 16 page color supplement that ran in the Sunday New York Times. That's very key because they didn't do a lot of this drug advertising before this. And he was one of the first ones to do it. And actually, with Sackler's help, 
Pfizer, who is really just a chemical manufacturer, began its business in making prescription drugs, which is kind of weird to think about these days. Right. With how big Pfizer is now. Especially with all the injections they need. Yeah, and with COVID, they really became the forefront. Yeah, but Mm -hmm. back in these days, they were just making chemicals, chemical manufacturer. They weren't producing their own medications. To give you an idea of how much they grew with Sackler's help, in 1950, Pfizer had eight salesmen. But by 1957, they had 2,000 salesmen for their medications, which is just insane. That's a lot of growth in seven years. Yeah. And between 1950 and 1956, Pfizer competed in the new antibiotic market, which seemed to be a big deal back then, with a drug called teramycin, which is no longer made anymore. It looks like when I looked it up, it was some sort of like tetracycline, which has a lot of its own side effects. So I imagine that's why it's not made what was wrong with it anymore tetracycline can ruin your teeth and oh yeah it's not really first choice if you can avoid it for the most part a lot of newer antibiotics out there and to continue with arthur's story in 1960 he began publishing a weekly newspaper geared towards doctors so this was sent to doctors it was called the medical tribune and his clients from his agency advertised in each issue seems a bit uh sketchy there to be putting out what this is a medical journal, medical newspaper that's supposed to be providing information to providers, yet the ads are all from his personal interest in these drug companies that he works with at the advertising agency. Okay. It seems a bit of a conflict of interest to me. You think? I'm just saying. In 1957, another drug company called Roche which still around, I believe, unless they've been bought out. It's kind of hard to keep up with some of these drug companies now. They developed a drug called Librium, which they said was for anxiety, depression, phobias, and obsessive thoughts. Mm -hmm. This is a big deal. This is one of the first tranquilizers that came out back in the day. Now, back in these times, the FDA regulations did not allow what we call direct-to-consumer advertising. So no ads on TV, the radio. That was not allowed at this time. Still don't think it should be allowed personally. Now now that's allowed. But they do have, they are allowed to do that now. But back then it was not allowed. So to get around it, Arthur had an article published in Life Magazine that was about how Librium called a lynx at the San Diego Zoo. It what? It calmed a lynx. Sounds like a giant cat. Okay. So they gave it Librium and it was all excited and aggressive and whatever and it calmed it down. So they couldn't advertise, but, but they, they published yeah. this article about it and then got around that and mentioned that it may eventually have important human uses, knowing that they were about to release it to the patient population people. Okay. Knowing they were about to do that. Arthur also sent vinyl records. That's how long ago this was vinyl records to doctor's offices with audio of physicians talking about the benefits of the drug. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he also ran ads in medical journals and sent direct mailings to physicians as well to get them to prescribe Libram. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so there, this is the origins right there. And this will all come back into play. By the end of 1950, oh, I'm sorry, to go back. In 1960, because of everything that Arthur had done, Libram had $20,000 worth of sales in its very first month of being on the market. Okay. Which is a lot of money, I'm sure, back in those days. Back in those days, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot. So I guess it paid off for him, all those sketchy things he did. 
Now, in 1959, the same company, Roche, developed a new tranquilizer, which they called Valium, which was a play on the Latin word Valerie, which means to be in good health. How ironic, because this is not good for you to take constantly. And yet, there we go. That's how they named it. Valium is actually pretty funny. Valium is basically what we refer to in the pharmacy world as alcohol and a pill. That's why they give it to people who are going through alcohol withdrawals. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So is that why people any buy it? Benzodiazepines, which is what this falls into, Valium, same family. That's what it is. Okay. Which I would not recommend if you can avoid it taking it constantly. No, unless you have seizures or something, which really it may help you. No, no, mostly it's clonazepam, but it's the same sort of family. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I just would not recommend it. So because this is basically duplicate of what they already put out, right? They have Librium, which they're becoming successful with. They had to pitch it for different ailments. Yeah. Keep in mind, this was not based on science. This was not them saying it worked better for these things. It was because they already had a drug on the market and they needed to sell this for other things so they could make a lot of money with it. Okay. So they said it was good for psychic tension psychic tension. I don't even know what, what the that? fuck that what means is what is that? psychic tension you're the pharmacist you tell me because it's made up it's not a thing and muscle spasms is that this true? well yeah you can take it for muscle spasms okay i would not again take it constantly but you technically can take it for muscle spasms this was aggressively marketed to women they were looking for housewives who were depressed or maybe feeling not valued so they were aggressively marketed to them. What for? Because not valued. So why? They, they a lot of these women back in these days they were housewives. They okay. didn't have a lot going on at home. So they marketed to them, and they felt yeah. Drunk so maybe the they day. were they were at home, and they were just kind of depressed about being at home all the time, or not being able to go out and work and feel as valuable as their husbands. So, and you know, a lot of these husbands probably treat their wives so they're like, like lesser than, and now they're drunk at home. Yeah, and now and they feel better, good, having a great day because you know women get all delirious and and get all worked up about things so you give them the volume and they calm down Hmm. true story in 1964 it worked out because they had 22 million prescriptions written for volume really Mm -hmm. 22 million and volume was the first 100 million dollar drug in history so that's where why his kids are pretty still pretty sketchy exactly what i'm saying Another fun thing is that Roche informed doctors and regulators that these drugs were not addictive. However, other people looked into it, including a Stanford professor and physician who conducted a study and found that patients entered withdrawal when they abruptly stopped the medicine, which is true. But Roche said, no, 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 that's not true. Withdrawals are not a result of this being addictive. That's because when you stopped the medication abruptly, the symptoms and their underlying conditions of these people intensified. And really these people just needed higher doses of the medicine. This will also come back into play with Oxycontin. I feel like that's what they said about Oxycontin. It sure did. It comes right back because around full circle. I know that makes sense now. Mm-hmm. So really also the people who were addicted to these medications were clearly just using the medications in what they called a non-therapeutic manner. That means they were either taking it and it wasn't prescribed to them or they weren't taking it like the doctor told them to. Again, this will play with Oxycontin. 
when we get to discussing that. And it just boils my blood. So another fun thing is that in 1957, there was a syndicated Ask the Doctor column that ran in a Pittsburgh newspaper. And the fun doctor who wrote this column said that the use of tranquilizers is not making us a nation of drug addicts. But who is that doctor? Dr. Mortimer Sackler. Hmm, think he had an interest in this? Hmm, seems kind of sketch. In 1965, despite all of the arguments from Roche, the federal government decided to go ahead and investigate Librium and Valium anyway, and an advisory committee with the FDA recommended that they be treated as controlled substances, which still applies today. However, Roche resisted these efforts for almost a decade until the patents were set to expire. This is important because when the patents expire, any drug company can come in and make a generic version of it and they lose money and they just move on to the next thing anyway. So by that time, they didn't care. So they resisted it. Like all these people get addicted to it and, and they take resist it. resist that. I, they argued with it. I don't know exactly what all they did. I didn't do a lot of research into what it, that involved. But okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Pretty okay. sketch. All right, so in 1952, amidst all of this, the three brothers, the Sackler brothers, purchased a company called Purdue Frederick. So in this company, Mortimer and Raymond became the co-chairman, and Arthur had a money stake. He helped purchase it, but he wasn't really involved. So they were really running it, Mortimer and Raymond, the two of them. So this is where all that kind of gets sketchy down the line after Arthur dies, you know, before everything went south with the Oxycontin thing. So in 1971, Raymond's son, Richard, joined the company as an assistant to his father and eventually became the head of research and development and the head of marketing. And I guess he learned a lot from his uncle, Arthur, because they did a lot of sketchy things. He was also, Richard was also a key figure in the development of Oxycontin around 1990 and became president of the company in 1999, which is why I said he's a key person in all of this. Mm -hmm. Just to give you some perspective, when they bought Purdue, originally, they started selling products like earwax remover, laxatives, and an antiseptic called Betadine, which is still people know this day. What it's iodine. Okay. Yeah. Betadine is still a common phrase. People know it. That's still around these days. But so you can get, that was their big seller, I believe, back then was the Betadine. You can get iodine today. Mm -hmm. Or brand name Betadine, I think, too. It's and what is that used for? It's iodine. It's antiseptic. Okay. So if you're going to get surgery or something mm -hmm. like that it's, yeah, it's the yellow red, it's the red stuff yellow red yeah orange they put on you right before they cut into you yeah that's what it is okay yeah. that makes sense that was their big seller before all of this stuff so we're gonna end today's episode by talking about ms cotton which is their leader into what comes with oxycontin and pain relief and pain management down the line ms cotton is kind of their intro into it so in 1966, the Sacklers bought a company called Knapp Laboratories, who developed their own drugs. So before this, Purdue was just selling things other people made. Didn't actually own a drug company, was my understanding. Knapp was the first one that they actually owned. So they bought them, and in the late 1970s, Knapp produced a morphine tablet. Morphine was already available, but they developed a new form of it which is the MS cotton. Okay. So this medication was developed for what they call hospice palliative care. You all know what happens when you go to hospice. Everyone knows that's the end of the line, right? right. We talked about that and you experience with it. 
So basically this drug is to help with pain relief for those sorts of patients. It's just to give them relief in their end of days. So even if it's addictive or it's strong, and like we said, there's a lot of side effects like stopping breathing, not to be mean, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not as big of a concern with these patients because they're already at the end of the line. Right. So you're just trying to make them comfortable at the end of the day. So you're not as worried about these things. So you don't care if they get addicted or anything like right, that. Right, because they're on of the where they're at. Yeah. They're on their way out. Anyway. These are a lot of cancer patients in particular. Yeah, unfortunately. What they did to make this pill different from regular morphine is that they developed a coating for it called cottonous or based on the word continuous, which made the drug release more slowly into your bloodstream. So you take a higher dose of it. That meant you were taking less pills throughout the day. Or for some of these patients, what I was reading about, they wanted to make this medication longer acting and easier for patients who were frequently having to go get IVs and injections of morphine. And this made it a little easier for those who didn't have to stay in a hospital full time, who could be at home or out and about. They were still in hospice care or maybe cancer patients, but they didn't want to have to be in the hospital constantly getting treatment. So this was supposed to help them with their pain relief. And because it was longer acting, it was less pills to take. And we call that pill burden when you're having to take a lot of medications all the time. This would help with that, too, because you could take it every eight or 12 hours. So it didn't have a totally development wise. It was not a negative thing, really, what they were looking at. Okay. So the drug MS cotton was first released in the UK, actually, in 1980. And I believe that's where NAPA Laboratories was based, if I remember right. It was in the UK. So around this time, the FDA was in America, was working on new regulations that would forbid what they called the grandfathering in of new twists on old drugs without submitting what they called a new drug application. So just because you did something fancy like to the morphine tablets and you made it a slower release, you would have to submit a new application to be reviewed by the FDA and get approval. So that means you'd have to show studies and research and why you wanted to put this out there and they would have to ultimately approve you to be able to sell it. That didn't work for the Sacklers. They weren't really interested in that. So without telling the FDA, Purdue started manufacturing MS cotton at a plant in New Jersey and started selling it in October 1984. They just started selling it without the FDA approval? Yes. Reps started pitching the drug to doctors across the country as a bold new tool for treating cancer pain, even though it didn't have FDA approval. So when the FDA found out about this, did they... They said, they said, what are you doing? You didn't submit a new drug application. That's what you're supposed to do for this. This medication is not grandfathered in. We're not doing that. Even though, you know, it's, they, Purdue was like, oh, it's just morphine, but it's not. It's a new version of the morphine. You have to submit this information and let us look at it before we approve it. That didn't work either. So Purdue went to political leadership in the Reagan administration to override the FDA's request for the new drug application. Shut up. And it worked. The FDA, eventually from all the pressure, allowed Purdue to continue to sell the drug as long as they still submitted the drug application that they were supposed to have originally. So basically they said, you can keep selling it. And at this point, Purdue also was like, oh, but we already have these patients on and these doctors prescribing and you're going to take it away from them. It was a hot mess and it just made it hard for the fda i feel like to have a good response yeah in this case i don't totally blame them it was difficult plus with them going to political leaders i mean seriously 
Ridiculous. Wow. At the end of the day, MS Cotton ended up having $170 million worth of sales in, in the a first... year. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's insane. So this is kind of the foray into Oxycontin, which we will talk about what ultimately happens in the battle between MS Cotton and Oxycontin because Purdue owns both. And it's again, pretty sketch what they end up doing with the two drugs. We're gonna be talking in particular in the next episode about Oxycontin and Purdue's entry into pain management. And yes, I say entry into that because they had their fingers all inside of different articles, studies and whatnot for pain management, which is really just pisses me off at the end of the day, like I've said a million times already. We'll also have future episodes where we'll talk about the sales in particular of Oxycontin. So what the sales team was doing to get doctors to prescribe it and all of their advertising trips that they sent doctors on, forums that they held, educational events, educational in quotes. We're also going to talk about abuse and how it rose in the United States around this time. And finally, the lawsuits that were filed against Purdue. Sounds like we have a lot to talk about in episode yeah. two. Like I said, this is just an intro and it was already a lot. So these episodes are going to be a little bit longer. Sorry, because <laughs> there's a lot to talk about in this. If you want to actually know the kind of the full picture of what's going on. Well, thanks. Yeah. Did you have anything you want to add? I'm sorry. I'm talking a lot. No, no. I mean, episodes. I think you pretty much summed it all up. Mm -hmm. So definitely check out limitless broadcasting yeah don't forget to go limitlessbroadcasting.com in the show notes i can put some of my references that i used throughout creating this series for the the painful truth podcast that includes some la times article uh, one la times article called you want a description of hell oxycontin's 12-hour problem there was a new york times article that kind of kicked off this entire thing called They Made the Most of the Opioid Crisis Until They Didn't, written by Patrick Keefe. He also wrote a book called Empire of Pain, and I use that a lot for my references throughout this. So make sure you check out the show notes for that as well. And then I'll have information about our different Instagram accounts that you can go check out and then TikTok again to remind you, please follow us on social media. It's not all about this stuff. <laughs> we do yeah. other things that are fun. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. And episode two is coming coming soon mm -hmm. so be on the lookout for that yep all right so all right until Thanks. next time until next time bye bye Thanks for listening to The Painful Truth of Living with Chronic Pain with Robbie and Sammy. Make sure you like, follow, and subscribe to the Limitless Podcast Network's own channel, Instagram, and all things social media. And we'll see you all real soon. 